There are a number of things I could talk about my culture, but I would like to talk specifically about what relationships look like in my context. In my culture, we tend to be very hospitable and loving, warm. Physically, affection is important, and we usually get greet everyone, even if we don't know them. For example, the previous Saturday, we went to a graduation party of a Mexican friend, and we were in the car, finishing wrapping her gift, and the people who were passing by our car to the party greeted us with a smile, raising their hand, as if we had known each other forever. And actually, I asked her, do you know them? And he was like, no. And I said, <laughs> also, we greet almost everyone that seems to live in our neighborhood, even if we don't know them. We greet people at the restaurant tables that are close to ours. It's the most normal thing to start talking with, a, with the family in front or behind us in the line at the grocery store. And these are just a few examples I could share of how greetings and relationships are in the context I grew up. I think Christ Church is a solid Christian community of American believers who are learning to live the gospel in their daily lives. They are mostly sociable and they are very talk, talk, talkative, talkative with each other. Some even give hugs and a smile, but this is mostly among those who know each other. I couldn't say that the majority of people are intentionally friendly with people they don't know. It strikes me that in church membership classes, we are invited to sit in a different place every Sunday, precisely for the purpose of meeting and talking to different people. However, I think more personal initiative is needed to make these new relationships. A good number of people have been very intentional with developing a relationship with me, and it encouraged me to know that some are trying to learn words in Spanish so that I can feel more comfortable. But I would love to see the majority being disintentional with unfamiliar faces. I sometimes think that this is part of the fact that I don't speak the language, but I wonder. If I will be more fluent, fluent in the language, will people... Will, Will people talk to me more? On the other hand, another hard part of the culture at Christ Church is the greetings. I think that because of my I think that because of my culture, I expect people to greet me more often. But here many people do not do it, and some do not even smile when I pass by because they don't know me. Culturally, I will tend to think that they have a personal issue against me. But I know this is not true because I have learned of your culture. Also, it is a barrier to be a minority as, a, as Latina in the church. And because of that, I feel I should conform to the culture of the majority. Lately, I have noticed that if someone does not speak to me, I do not do it either. If someone does not smile at me, neither do I. But then I think of another Latinos who could come to Christ Church for the first time and do not know Christ, but perhaps were passing by and saw that it was a Christian church and decided to come in. If no one greets that person for the simple fact that they don't know him or her, that person will probably not return to the church. I realize I'm very comfortable not having to talk to people, not greeting or even smile at them smile at them if I don't know them. But I have seen myself leaving the church many times 
on my way home discouraged for not having spoken to someone. And in no way it's an attempt to complain, nor do I pretend that now everyone gives me a hug every time they see me. I think it's rather a wake-up call for everyone, an invitation to be like Christ by smiling at others. The Lord created us as a relation of beings. Relation, relationships within the body are important. We are members of each other, and we can at least smile and show the love of Christ through it. Speaking of this with my husband, we have thought and come to the conclusion that the greeting, that greetings is important not because of our culture, but because of the simple fact that we are now Christians in first place, and this makes us brothers and sisters for eternity. Our identity now is children of God, and by representing the Lord who has saved us all, we can greet each other. Thank you. Thank you for sharing those things with us. I know that probably was not easy for you. But again, also, thank you for giving us the privilege of having a conversation that normally we would need to spend lots of time with you in order to earn the right to hear that you're willing to come and share with us. That's, that's great. Um, she was willing to do that. I'm now going to ask for a volunteer. Some of you might be cringing when I say that. But could somebody recite... The Lord's Prayer for me. All right. You're good. All right. I'm, I'm not quizzing for accuracy here. I'm just wanting to hear it. How about in another language? Yeah? Can we hear it? Yeah. Anybody else know another language by chance? All right. I want to tell you about another church. Uh, the one before was in Nazareth. This one is on the Mount of Olives. I think I've sent a picture of some of it out to you guys. You can also just Google Church of Pater Noster, uh, Latin for our father. Uh, when you said our father, what, what did you say in Spanish? Okay, so very obviously similar to the Latin there, okay? So, this church on the Mount of Olives has a courtyard that is decorated with the Lord's Prayer in over 100 languages. Um, so I had some pictures that I wanted to show you guys. You can see it on those guys' phone maybe if they show it to you. I, I picked Syriac, uh, Macedonian, Spanish, and Korean, mostly because those were nice, clean pictures that I got a hold of. 
but there's over 100 languages. And in the same way that I fear we might be comfortable with our black and white coloring book version of the, the, the announcement to Mary, or any other biblical event for that matter, I fear that we might be selling ourselves short with what I would call the Friday Night Lights version of the Lord's Prayer. So growing up playing football, before every game, I would take a knee, grab hands with a bunch of lost dudes, and recite the Lord's Prayer in King James English. As if that would somehow, I don't know, bring some sort of blessing to our team and we might win, I don't know. And I'm sure the other team in the other locker room was doing the same thing. Bunch of lost dudes taking a knee, reciting King James English of a prayer that they really have no idea what it's really about. What is that prayer about? When the disciples came, Jesus said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. What did he talk about? The fatherhood of God, his holiness, separateness, specialness in his character, and a request that his reign would take root in his creation, and then our personal and social needs. Think about those 100 different versions of that prayer. When you say the Lord's Prayer to one of them, they don't think, Our Father who art in heaven. They think about it in their language. Let's also consider, in the effort of bridge building, in the effort of contextualizing, a background where prayer is not considered to be conversive at all for someone. Where it's really more of a physical act done to gain merit. Literally going through the motions. Or how about this? God as Father is blasphemous to them because it's a simplistic, reductionistic rejection of the implications of the word father in terms of procreation in a human sense. How about someone who has a lack of concept of heaven? For them, the afterlife is something completely different. The, the location of God is, is com- something completely different than what we would see in the Bible. Perhaps kingdom for them conjures up thoughts of oppression, genocide, and imperialism. Or how about this? Daily bread is a literal concept. They go to the neighborhood bakery each day and they get preservative-free bread that is a large part of their sustenance and it will be stale by tomorrow. They literally live by daily bread. Now, me sharing all those things I hope doesn't create a lot of stress and you're like, oh my goodness, how would I ever talk about the Lord's Prayer with somebody else? I hope it encourages you in, again, beginning to learn more about ourselves and others for the sake of the church. And yet, with all those things flowing around, this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Throughout the centuries, Believers of all peoples and places know this prayer. More than 100 versions of it, right? The concepts it contains reshape our thinking. And the God to whom this prayer is addressed reshapes us as his children. So, I am again going to try to pass along uh, an image 
to some guys and they can share it with you. I want us to think about what we've labeled as first, second, and now third biblical culture. I'm giving them a little image. I wanted to show it to you guys in the slides. Don't be nitpicky about it. It's not perfect. It's just a kind of a different way to think about this. But I do want to give you another metaphor. Any coffee fans out there? All right, if you are a coffee snob, you can leave your hand up. All right, so let's think about making coffee. Usually you have three elements in traditional coffee brewing. Okay, I'm not talking about French press. I'm not talking about whatever else. It might be you have grounds from the coffee, you have water, and then you have a filter. So bear with my metaphor a little bit here, but think about it. As we come, maybe we are the coffee grounds. All right? Different levels of roast, different locations from whence we came, elevations, harvesting techniques, all the stuff we get into, right? We can talk about that another time. All right, so different uh, degrees to which we are ground, fineness, that comes in. You mix that with water. Different sources of water, different levels of purity of the water, temperatures of that water. But then what happens? The coffee passes through a filter that lets out the correct amount of extracted liquid and a little bit of oil to hopefully give you what is a glorious cup of brewed delight to the glory of God. Right? Amen. So think about it. None of us are like, hey, let's go get some coffee. <laughs> Chewing grounds, right? That's gross. Not saying your first culture is gross. Just bear with me in the metaphor. None of us, if we are enlightened enough, if, um, you know, if we've got things figured out in this world enough, would trade a glorious cup of coffee for just plain water or hot water, right? tea drinkers. We love you as well. <clears throat> but we take those things and we put them together. We pass them through the right filter and we come out with something amazing. Let's think about first culture coming in, second culture coming in. So our, the one that we're bringing, the one that we are interacting with as our neighbor, as we love them, some elements pass over, some elements are at friction with one another. But when we pass them through the filter of Biblical culture, we end up with something amazing to the glory of God. All right. Some of you guys might have been sitting out there and you maybe are thinking, all right, enough with like the, the culture indicators and enough with, you know, like the sociology and stuff like that, statistics. I want more Bible. All right. So here you go. I'm going to give you, as we bring this thing down to a close, a brief biblical theology of culture and culturality. We're going to talk about our binding identity, and then we're going to break down the process of where do we go from here. All right, so super fast version of a biblical theology of culture and culturality. We are going to start at the beginning, and we are going to run to the end. So here we go. We begin in, of course, Eden. We have image bearers, vice regents, 
little lords created by an eternal triune God, an infinite divine community. He creates work and stewardship. There are divine human, male-female, human creation and interactions. And he gives a command, fill and subdue the earth. This is an expansion project. There is a tell us to it. There is an, an eschatological mind in place from the very beginning. And God calls it very good. Then, unfortunately, just a few chapters in, we see sin and the curse that it brings, the toil that comes along with that, and even marital and gender conflict. So Genesis 1 through 3, just the first couple pages of your Bible, provide the definitive authority on anthropology. What you need to know about humans is pretty much summed up in the first few pages of your Bible. Image bearers marred by sin, needing the snake crusher to rescue them. We come ahead to Cain and Abel. We see family propagation, be fruitful and multiply. We see production of crops and herds and even worship. We see murder. We show what humanity is capable of. Then we have Lamech coming in the line of kings six generations down. He's the first to be known to have two wives, the introduction of polygamy. He breathes murderous threats against anybody who would challenge him. Later on, from the wife Adah, we have Jabal, the father of the twin de- tent dwellers. Excuse me. They have livestock. They are nomadic. We have Jubal, also from that mom, who's the father of all who play the lyre and the pipe. We see the introduction of music. Then we have Tubal Cain, whose mother was Zillah, the other wife. The forger of instruments of bronze and iron. We see industry, all of these cultural elements coming to play. We come ahead to Noah. There is a downward spiral, spiral continuing. The son of, sons of God take the daughters of men. We see the presence of the Nephilim. We see a culture permeated with sin and full of violence. Every intention of man's heart was set on evil continually. Life is limited to 120 years-ish. One's contribution, therefore, to a culture is likewise limited. We see regret and grief and then destruction through the flood. But a redemptive invention, the ark, is designed by God and communicated to a righteous man. And there is the preservation of, specifically, family. Along with that, the preservation of animals, specifically those who are clean, which brings to mind food laws and worship in the future. So in a sense, culture starts over. Be fruitful and multiply is again charged to humanity, and the value of human life is repeated. God made man in his own image, and that image is passed down through humanity. Meat is also introduced as food, interestingly enough. And yet Noah is a vine dresser. We have the introduction of drunkenness. Canaan then shames his father and is cursed. Following that, we have the table of nations. A distinguishing of various peoples and hence various cultures. We see lands, languages, clans, and nations. We come to the Tower of Babel. How did we arrive at such diversity there? Let's remember the Hebrew narrative is not necessarily or exclusively linear. This is an ancient cultural clue into how we read the Bible. We see rebellion against the command to fill the earth. Instead of uh, going out and, and, and filling the earth, they are trying to come together and reach the heavens. 
There's a culture of power with its founder Nimrod, a culture of pride with the tower building, and it is a monoculture as opposed to the unifying image of God across multiculture. It's the first real mention of construction, architecture, and even civil engineering of this scale. And the confusion of language leads to the dispersion of people, and language has marked culture ever since. We come to Abraham. The story shifts to focus on the line of Shem and specifically one man's family. He is called out from the pagans. He had an existing culture, an existing belief in place, and that he is called to leave and cleave. He is promised an immense people. He interacts with other cultures like Egypt and Abimelech. Abraham develops into a king of sorts. He has possessions, soldiers. He goes to war to rescue Lot. We see problems stemming from polygamy. We see the creation of the Ishmaelites with the Moabites and the Ammonites coming through Lot's daughter's incest. We know that Ishmael is circumcised, and so he is even included in the family in some sense. Positively, the foundation of Abram's story is not language, bloodline, color, or ritual. It's not culture. It's righteousness by faith in divine promise. This is marked by circumcision which carries cultural significance around the world, even to this day. We come to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a small repeat of the Noah narrative. It's a culture of sin. It turns sexuality upside down. There is a rescue by divine preservation, but there is judgment by a flood of fire. With Isaac and Jacob and Esau, there is marriage intentionally from kindred relations. There is birthright and blessing. We get the Joseph, Israelite, Ishmaelite, and Egyptian cultures interact during his story. We observe what is an advanced society, an advanced culture in Egypt. And God uses one who does not belong to that culture to actually rescue it and to rescue his own culture in doing so. The 12 tribes are established through patriarchal blessing, but they function as a minority culture in Egypt. With Moses, the king changes and the interaction with the Israelites change as a result. Egyptian and, Egyptian and Israelite cultures are now clashing. There is oppression, slavery, and infanticide. Moses doesn't belong to any one culture. He's born Hebrew, raised Egyptian. He fled to Midian. He's intermarried with the woman from there. He returns to rescue his people, but he's not immediately accepted by his own. He is a cultural outsider in many ways. We see religion intertwined with culture. The plagues are an affront to the gods of Egypt, and God gets glory over them. With the exodus and the establishment of the nation of Israel, there is the unique creation of a biblical theocracy by means of covenant. God chooses one people out of all the peoples of the earth to be his treasured possession and then sets up a society as a beacon for the world. <clears throat> covenant. It is the fullest, ex fullest expression of culture thus far in the story. It covers all aspects of life, ranging from life in the home to that of life in the field to that of the tabernacle. It's the official inception of the set-apartness of God's people Israel, and it is the beginning of the Jew-Gentile divide. These people are nomadic. Think about the wilderness wandering for 40 years, and yet... Their culture is extensively expressed, and it is also eschatological. It is going somewhere. With Canaan, we have an intense class, clash of cultures. 
clash of clans. Uh, there is, it is theological. There is a judgment on the peoples for sin. And God gets glory over local deities time and again. There is a direct connection to specific land and inheritance. But a failure to fully devote the land to Yahweh leads to centuries of problems for God's people. With the monarchy, Samuel comes, he warns of the cost. The people wanted specifically to be like the surrounding peoples. Israel's monarchy with its theocratic background was unique. It is about covenant promise rooted in David's line. But we know that kingship here is not a secular position. At the peak of established Israelite society, particularly in the reign of Solomon, we have what is literally a breathtaking culture on display in the kingdom. And we see the centrality of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. We get to the Psalms and the wisdom writings. We see Israel's hymnal, the significance of music and poetic expression. Literature is a unique cultural identifier. And let's not forget that this entire analysis is coming from a piece of literature written in our language to understand and discuss now the Bible. In the split of the kingdom, we have the development of two distinct cultures built on ethnic and religious intermixing in the north. There is an ensuing conflict and racism between Jews and Samaritans that would last for centuries. These kingdoms can never restore their former glory, and they continue to be influenced by the surrounding peoples. Prophets come, they warn, often by living it out, acting it out, and figuratively depicting the coming judgment. But the people will not listen. So they go into exile. The focus shifts to the southern kingdom, Judah, in 586. The fall of Jerusalem comes at the hands of foreigners, Babylonians. We see the destruction of the cultural center known as the temple. The majority of the people are sent to a new culture that is imposed on them. Think about Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Yet Jeremiah says, seek the good of the city, even as you live as cultural outsiders, even as you are in your ethnic enclaves. The return from exile is marked by disappointment, diaspora, and the dark ages. They come, and those who know about the former glory, they weep. The Jews are sent out, scattered around the area as minority cultural clusters. And we see the development of the synagogue, which plays such a huge role in the New Testament. And the Dark Ages of Revelation. Revelation. It is a, what we call the intertestamental period. It's a period of silence for hundreds of years. In the first century, pick up the story. Rome has conquered. Jews are minorities. And there is an intermixing of peoples with an overarching military and political rule. We see Aramaic, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek all having a role in these stories. We come upon the nativity. It's prefaced by matriarchal Gentiles in the genealogy. As we talked about earlier, angel shows up. Because of that, Joseph wants to save face, not shame his wife or himself by quietly divorcing the Virgin Mary. The shepherds in society are the first invitees, and then later the magi come from the east, bearing the treasures of the nations for the Christ child. Next, a leather-wearing, locust-eating teetotaler named John shows up, proclaiming a message of repentance and preparation. He's dunking people out in the water in the wilderness. Jesus comes with a message of the 
kingdom of God. Into the Roman Empire, he inserts the kingdom of God. The new Anthropos has come. The perfect Adam, the ark who saves us from the flood of judgment, the seed of Abraham, the firstborn son, the true Israel, the true David, the very word of God has tabernacled among his people. The king of the cosmos is now in flesh and blood in the presence of a first century Jewish man. His king, kingdom is super cultural. It's not bound by language, gender, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, family, or ritual. He comes to do the will of his father. He loves his new spiritual siblings. And he comes to be the savior of the world he created. How does he do that? He's unfairly tried by Jewish leadership. He's killed like a criminal on a Roman cross. He is buried according to the law. He's raised in victory over death. And he's bringing awe to those who are merely seeking to fulfill burial customs. In Acts and following, we see it progressing along the outline that we have in chapter 1, verse 8, as you guys know in your current series. It takes on not only geographic, but cultural and ethnic realities in concentric steps moving outward. When we get to Pentecost, we have the reversal of the Tower of Babel. People from all over the empire are united, not by nature of a singular language, but by a singular message, speaking of God's excellencies in the heart languages of all in attendance. We have dudes like an Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius. We have the, the situation with Peter and the pigs in a blanket. Uh, the journeys of Paul. He's living as being all things to all people as the gospel increasingly goes out to the Gentiles. And let me remind you, that is us. We see the development of a new Christian superculture. Common belief and practice, as outlined in Scripture, provides unity despite immense diversity. Not only has the uh, curtain in the temple been torn, but the wall of hostility has also been torn down. The temple court is no longer divided to keep the Gentiles out, figuratively speaking. God's multi-diverse wisdom is on display through a multi-diverse people united around him. Let's jump all the way to Revelation. The story comes full circle. We return to a garden which has now become a city as the world is recreated as a bride for the great groom, Jesus. There is worshiping around the throne, believers from all cultures, there are kings bringing the treasures of the nations, and the leaves in the garden are for the healing of the nations. God's people will forever live in a new and perfect theocratic society. And this is even better than the original Eden. This is what the Bible, in short, has to say about culture and culturality when we think about it that way. I want to bring this thing down by giving you guys not only that biblical theology, but a, a binding identity and then a way to break down kind of our response to what we've talked about. So our binding identity can be crafted in this way. We've already talked about Gentiles, but then also adding in sojourners and saints. So I don't think anybody in here is 100% pure-blooded Jew. I think that's probably a safe assumption and is in the vast majority of the world. 
All right, nobody's getting mad at me. All right, so we're Gentiles. We belong to the nations. Pantate ethne. All right, we are sons of Abraham by faith, not genes. By rebirth, not birth. It is the blood of Christ that unites us, not our blood lines. We are Gentiles. We are all the same in that way. We are also sojourners. We don't belong here. Our citizenship is now heavenly. Our homeland is now God's presence. We are all now cultural outsiders, no matter how you slice it. Life here is temporary, and we are called to live for the city of God and not some other polis, be it mainstream ideology, politics, comfort, or success. We are sojourners. We're also saints. We're set apart. God declares us to be holy. He calls us to be his own. He gives us himself, his very spirit. And as new creations, as redeemed image bearers, as God's children, let's remember that we have more in common with fellow Christians than those who look like us, think like us, talk like us, but are not spiritual siblings. We're saints. This is our binding identity. This gives us a place from which I think we can work to love one another better. Let's break it down. All right. You've thrown at me these different ends of spectrum for thinking through culturality. You've uh, tried to get me to evaluate even some generalities about other countries and other peoples. You've given me some some thoughts on what I should do to kind of walk through this process. But what do I do when, I, when I'm making coffee? What do I do when I'm taking first, second, and trying to filter it through third culture? What do, what do I do? Here's the process. Repentance, redirection, or repetition. All right. How do we rectify these concepts? How do we know who we naturally are? How do we learn who others naturally are? And then how do we strive for being something supernaturally other than what we normally are? We do it with looking at repentance, redirection, or repetition. We start with ourselves. We spend time in prayer. We strive for community. Not for community's sake, but because we want to be united with the triune God. We, first of all, might need to repent. Wherever our culturality is clearly at odds with biblical culturality, we leave behind that which is normal to us, and we embrace that which is abnormal to the world. We want to be influenced by the culture of the New Testament church. We want scripture to have the final say. So as you evaluate culturality, beginning with ourselves, through time and prayer, and with the aim of striving for community, we might need to repent if we're at friction. The second option is redirection. Wherever our culturality contains non-moral tendencies, innocent identifications, or just simple preferences that don't conflict with biblical culturality, we can redirect them. Again, from a position of grace, not guilt, for much more glorious aims. Or we can redirect ourselves for the good of our brother or sister in Christ. So here, don't think so much sin as healthy accommodation. Redirection. 
The last option might be repetition. Wherever our culturality aligns with biblical culturality, we can carry on. But as we do, let's be careful that we avoid confirmation bias. Just, oh, yeah, that's, that's already good. All right, don't need to deal with that. But let's also thank God for his common grace and orchestration of peoples in history to bring about that aspect of what is your nurtured personhood. So let's remember what the Bible has to say about culture and culturality. Let's remember our binding identity as Gentiles, sojourners, and saints. And let's break it down thinking through repentance, redirection, and repetition as potential options for how we handle this interaction. But then let's not forget that we have a glorious invitation to give to the world. The nations are raging. Our world is in chaos. All the diversity training in the world cannot achieve what we are working for as sojourning saints. The world cannot be unified, but the church can. This is a spiritual enterprise. And let's go to the outsiders and say, in the midst of raging nations, in the midst of a world in chaos, in the midst of diversity fighting against itself or just heaping shame on majority culture, let's go to the outsiders and say, why would you not choose the place where people are actually trying to fight their sin? Why would you not want to come and be among those who are actually trying to kill their pride? Why would you not want to come to those who actually understand what it means to prove themselves to be a neighbor through compassion like the Samaritan? Why would you not want to come be among us? Let me invite you. Come with me. Let's build bridges. Let me share this glorious truth with a way that you understand. Please, please choose the church. It's the only lasting choice. Relational chaos is the norm, even among shared culture. No one is on the same page because we're all bringing something different to the table. Let's at least go to the place where people are united around the Lord's table. I think a really simple way for you as Christ Church to think about this is just to remember your name. Christ Church. Whenever you take all this, sum it down into one thing. When you feel the tension, when you experience outward guilt, when there are issues of culturality that might be at odds, remember your name, Christ Church, and you might even want to add a little apostrophe S there. Christ's Church. You belong to the Savior of all peoples. And he has given you his very, his very self to live out that calling of belonging to him. Along those lines, <clears throat> I want to share a quote again from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Your real new self, which is Christ and also yours, and yours just because it is his, will not come as long as you are looking for it. It will come when you are looking for him. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ and you will find him. And with him, everything else thrown in.
Look for Christ. Remember your name, Christ Church. In a little bit, we're going to wrap up by looking at two different resources, one called Stratus and one called Joshua Project. You might be familiar with the latter. We want you to also get some familiarity with the former. And you're going to spend some time together, kind of bringing all this together, and then actually spending a little bit of time discussing as groups and also praying for the people groups of the world that desperately need this message. Before we get to that, though, I want to share with you a little bit more uh, holy hip-hop lyrics to encourage your souls and then pray. And before we completely wrap up, we'll have one more member interview mediated through Clint. Here we go. Worth, value, and beauty is not determined by some innate quality, but by the length for which the owner would go to possess them. And broken and ugly things, just like us, are stamped excellent, with ink tapped in wells of divine veins, a system of redemption that could only be described as perfect, a seal of approval, fatal debt removal, promised, prominent, perfect, priest, brilliant design system redemption for our kinsmen can only be described as perfect with excellent execution. And I'm in awe, the only one truly excellent, the only source of excellence. We are declared excellent only by his decree with his system. And the only accurate response is awe. Let's pray. God, we are in awe of you. Fatherly creator, engineer and designer of this world with this intricacy and beauty and the one who brought about this redemption story. The one who came, took on flesh and blood, became one of us that we might be brought to you. We praise you and thank you for the gospel. And Lord, we ask now that as we spend time praying for the nations, that as we reflect together as friends around tables, and as we carry on this conversation, as we leave from this day, Lord, that you would help Christ's church and the others that Christ's church is able to influence to engage in this amazing and ultimately spiritual enterprise as we seek to live out a more biblical culturality. Lord, I thank you for this church. I praise you for how you have worked in Albuquerque, and I ask that you would heap on more blessings, that you would use them, that you would glorify yourself among these people, that you would lift their eyes to the city, to the state, to the country, to the nations, to the unreached peoples of the world, that all might see and savor the glory of Christ. Make much of yourself among us as we deal with our culturality. Thank you, God. Bless the rest of our day and this ongoing conversation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's what Skylar said. And I, uh, we told him the questions, kind of, sort of, what your culture growing up and your, your natural culture is. The second question I think folks have been answering in the testimonies is, um, what do you perceive the culture at Christ Church to be like? 
And then um, what are some barriers uh, um, there? And then um, in the third question, what are some ways in which those barriers have hindered relationship? And what are some ways in which people have blessed you or, or you've sought to bless others by crossing those barriers? So here are Skylar's answers to those questions. Uh, culture, cultural values before I was saved uh, in the very beginning. Uh, reputation was very important to me. Uh, what man thought about you, how you were perceived by others. I learned this through my mother. As we would visit other family members, I would be instructed to be on my best behavior, not my normal behavior. Uh, it, it was more important to look together than it was to actually be together. And he says, spoiler alert, nobody got it together. Uh, this grew into something more sinister as I started finding my identity and my value in my gang. And in case you're wondering, he's talking about a real gang. Um, this was of the utmost importance how I was perceived by those people, by, my, by the gang that I was a part of. Was I perceived as weak? Or as strong as I grew up in this, I was taught, you take what you want, you show no weakness, and everybody else is the enemy. Everybody being those in law enforcement and specifically other opposing gangs. Love was conditional. It was determined by loyalty in the, in the right and in the wrong. A slogan that was taught as the gospel, it was loyalty above all laws, death before dishonor. I'll repeat it. Loyalty above all laws, death before dishonor. So family turned into the people that I was rolling with on the streets, not necessarily those who were related to me. And as a result, the gang became more important to me than those of my own household, although I would not admit that out loud. But my actions did display that. In terms of money, there was no respect for it. There was no boundaries for it. It was just something I was driving after by any means necessary. By, by no means was money a result of all this work, good work. It was a result of scheming and of force. In regards to education, not many people around me were educated by mainline education. What I mean by that is the last grade that I went to was eighth grade. School was not encouraged. It was a place to sell drugs and promote self-interest. The education that I received came from my particular gang. As a result, further ignorance in my actions and hardness of heart was inevitable. Confident ignorance was my normal. Confident ignorance was my normal. I thought that was a really interesting way to put that and powerful. All of these things put me in a position to judge others, especially those of the middle and upper class. It always made me think that they thought they were better. They thought uh, they were more worthy. Race really was not at all involved with my prejudice. Rather, it was the class of people, poor, middle, rich. I still struggle with this a lot. I believe a big part of it is that I experienced so much brokenness and pain that it's hard for me to believe that anybody is put together the way that they seem to be put together. So as a result, I believe people are fake. And this comes from this broken worldview. But by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit, Christ has abolished any divide. There is no more Jew nor Greek nor male nor female. All are one in Christ. Amen to that. Now I say, I believe. Lord, help my unbelief. So on the second question, more about Christ's church. So to be brutally honest, Skylar says, I see a culture that is preached about, that is strived towards, and is the goal more than the, more than the, 
more, more, I don't know, I should really say anything. More, than, more from the preacher than the pulpit. I don't actually understand that. But we give a lot, financially speaking, very good with that. But as a culture that emulates relational love, it is lacking. The pursuit of one another daily, the pursuit of a fallen brother or sister, or the pursuit of the lost are areas that may be lacking. Now, please, brothers and sisters, I say this first looking at myself and my own household by no means am I saying I got this down. I think he spoke this into his phone because I'd add a lot of periods. Uh, it, it, it is easy for me to walk into church and, and not to be spoken to, nor, uh, not, not with anything of substance anyway. Why does this feel so uncomfortable to talk about? Maybe because I'm guilty of this myself. When I first came to Christ's church, it was a lot smaller, more personable and familial. What is the comparative difference from then and now? Well, to state the obvious, the more people there are, the harder it is to get to know everybody, and that's okay. When I first came, I remember having a conversation almost every Sunday about a testimony. How is God working in your life? What is he up to? And those, uh, and those same questions will be asked to me as I would ask those to others. That is less frequent nowadays. Here's a challenge. Don't bring up Jesus in a convo at church and see how many times he comes up as we speak to each other about what we care about and love and are thinking about. We talk about what we love, right? And if you really pay attention to our conversations, what is the thing that's coming out of our mouth the most? Is it Jesus? So number three, how have, how have others blessed him and, and, and he tried to bless others by crossing cultural barriers in the church? Well, I think more, the most part, it was allowing people in that was the most difficult. Sometimes I have preconceived notions that others are judging or others won't understand, etc. I have, um, I've had the pleasure and honor of growing some deep relationships here at Christ Church. When I first came to Christ Church, the, the love and acceptance was unbelievable. Uh, and then he rattles off a bunch of dudes. Uh, Matt, Clint, Jeff, Quinn, Nando, Matt, Dave, Nathan, John, Mark, Chris, Tyler, Gabe, all these men and, and several others um, I've not mentioned have played a major role in my life in ways they themselves may not really know. I, I come from a completely different place, completely different experience, but the love and acceptance superseded all that. And this is all possible through Jesus. The more I reflect on what it means to be a Christian, the more I realize how superficial cultural barriers really are. We are all sinners in need of a savior. Our brokenness may look different, but the root cause is all the same. I have learned and I am continuing to learn the necessity and value of listening and listening well. I thank God for this body that he has allowed me to be in. Yours truly, hug, hug, kiss, kiss, hug, hug. Just kidding. <laughs> All right, yeah, you got love Skyler. You live for Skyler on Sunday. Well, I think he's still out of town tomorrow. But uh, next time you see him, he's a little, he's a little spooky looking if you, you don't know him. But he's a big, soft bear, and he'll, he'll love you to death if you go, give, go in for a hug. Uh, Mr. M, thank you, brother. Let's give him a hand.